Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. I'm here with Terence Sweeney, who is the editor-at-large of the Genealogies of Modernity blog, a project co-sponsored by the Collegium Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture uh, in Philadelphia, the University of Pennsylvania, and also by Beatrice Institute. And we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in that project. Terence is also finishing up his PhD in philosophy at Villanova and has been publishing a slew of articles with five of them forthcoming in the next six months or so. And so there's a lot to... Terence is a you know, up-and-coming young scholar of philosophy and theology. So uh, it's very nice to have you with us. Terence. It's good to be here. Terence, why did God create time? <laughs> uh, because, uh, it's a good question, uh, but I think love, uh, love always desires some, someone else to love, and God's eternality means that uh, if there wasn't, uh, it got, you can't have duplicate eternalities, uh, and so for there to be others to love, God made time, which is what allows for plurality, and so a plurality of both God loving the plurality and the plurality able to love God and to love each other. That would be, uh, that would be my, my, my fast answer. According to a certain reading of Nietzsche, as the editor of the Genealogies of Modernity blog, you must be feeling senile by now. Has this project been aging you? Yeah, I, one of the articles I, I wrote that I, I was, <laughs> that I liked, partially inspired by having a child, was uh, on Hannah Arendt and, uh, kind of, and newness. Because uh, the, there is this kind of threat of suddenly doing all this genealogical work and getting older and older and realizing everything has more and more causes and, and family connections. And, but to realize that actually this work, when it was really done well, actually, I think what Nietzsche wants in the kind of untimeliness of things is to be able to make something new. And that, I think, is also you know, grounded in the possibility of a, of a theological genealogy, since, since God has such a strong instance, uh, insistence on, see, I'm doing something new. Uh, I actually think that genealogical work can, uh, can kind of participate in that that tracing the old does not doom us to gray hair, even if I'm starting to have some on my chin. Right. So what distinguishes Christian genealogy from other kinds of genealogy? Yeah. So I think, uh, I mean, definitely influenced by McIntyre here and uh, trying to think through this question that in some sense, there can, we could think of there being three, uh, at least in, the, in, in Western thought. And so, you know, the kind of modern or enlightenment or what McIntyre calls encyclopedia focus which tends to be this kind of like progress-based celebration of kind of rational knowledge moving along uh, at a good clip. You know, uh, Kant's kind of what is enlightenment's, you know, this kind of process of critique in which the liberal modern subjects ultimately doesn't really have to critique themselves. Not my favorite position. But the, the Nietzschean, Foucauldian tradition really is one that wants to deny uh, anything besides temporality uh, and historicity. And so there's, there's just the, the flow, the flux of of time and events and things happen, we can uh, analyze them, but the, it just, things happen. And so the, the Christian genealogical tradition is trying to take seriously that account by, by, by not denying the, the meaning of temporality and historicity, while also 
uh, seeing a kind of intimacy with with the eternal. That's in fact actually what we get with the eternal is that's that space of contrast that lets history be real and lets us see where uh, the eternal kind of pops in to time, most significantly in in the incarnation and then in the, the sending of the Holy Spirit. So it's this kind of intimacy with the temporal and the eternal. And it's a hard task because you can start drifting in the direction where everything becomes a focus on stasis, where we just, all we really want to talk about really is the eternal. But then the temptation in the other direction is to slide to, to, to mere temporality. And so finding that way, and you know, in this sense, this is in some ways a kind of Christological challenge. If we want to talk about Christ, how do we speak of his, of his humanity in a real way? And how do we speak of his divinity in a real way without losing either? And I think that's the task of the Christian geologist to take seriously time uh, while taking seriously the eternal. The Bible has, is invested in literal genealogy. It's all over the place. Books often begin with it too. And in some ways, three of the Gospels begin with genealogies. What's going on in the Gospel genealogies? How, how do you think about the work that's being accomplished there? Yeah, I think that's a key question. It's something I, I was really started reflecting on more uh, after this past, past summer's uh, genealogies three, when, when you were talk, talking about this question, and trying to see really how all four Gospel beginnings, or of course, they, uh, Matthew and Luke place the genealogies in slightly different locations, what they're trying to draw on. And I think, in some sense, uh, kind of grounding, Matthew clearly grounding in, in the particular of the Jewish tradition, and then in Luke, drawing on a much more kind of a broader story of humanity, being the sons and daughters of Adam. And I think both want to show the, the kind of this family connection for the Hebrew people, and then the family connection for all, all of humanity at the same time, so that we, can, we need to think of the chosen people and the nations uh, together. And that's ultimately part of uh, the Christian vision, uh, itself a fraught project because of the way Christians have chosen, them, uh, sorry, have treated the chosen people and sometimes have forgotten that that lineage doesn't cease with Christ. So looking at both the story of humanity and the story of the Jewish people and then the, the church as a kind of, as the chosen people grafted onto the Jewish people. But then again, John, John's insistence that to speak of Jesus requires to speak of the Logos. And so trying to think those clearly genealogical texts with John's, you know, in the beginning. And then Mark, <laughs> who wants none of that, he just is boom, uh, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus kind of shows up almost out of nowhere. John says, this guy's coming, and then, he, then he's there, and we're off to the races. And I think on the question of like senality and feeling old from genealogies, one of the great bracing things about Mark is it's immediate, it's now. Uh, it's, I mean, that's the kind of chirological reasoning. But the Kairos is now. This is the moment of decision. And sometimes, you know, family trees pop up out of nowhere. <laughs> and, uh, and we have to kind of, uh, you know, be willing to, to, to be faced by that. So I think trying to think all four together is, again, another, tr- you know, great Christian task. Why four Gospels? Why not one? Well, that we can't just ignore them. And we, won't, we don't want to explain away each one. But so to be challenged to think with each one in, in different valences. In 2004, I shared a taxi at a conference with Merrill Westfall, and I distinctly remember him pronouncing that in this new century, that this new century was beyond metaphysics. Metaphysics had been overcome. The future of philosophy would no longer have metaphysics, and the future of the Christian faith depended on overcoming metaphysics. And at that 
conference that was held at Purdue, it seemed that he was absolutely right. I mean, granted, there were still some papers about overcoming metaphysics, but there were also a lot of papers that were clearly working beyond metaphysics or after metaphysics, and it sure seemed like the future of philosophy was going to proceed without metaphysics. But metaphysics seems to be making a comeback, not only in the enlarged footprint of analytic Thomism, but also in some circles of continental philosophy. How do you explain the return of metaphysics? Yeah, yeah, the uh, it's it's death was maybe a little bit uh, anticipatory. I think, I mean, in one sense, the kind of uh, post-metaphysical uh, claims, which are kind of old. I mean, Kant's is we're, we're going to get after metaphysics with Kant, and then all, now we're after metaphysics with Heidegger, and now we're after metaphysics again and again. But I think it speaks to a kind of recurring question that we we do care about the being of things uh, i actually think in some ways walker percy the novelist has a great aspect this, about this in some of his essays where he you know he the child who wants to know the name of something they wants to be able to say you know you know that is is a robin uh and gets excited for such a thing is i think speaking to a kind of metaphysical exigency a need uh for being and i also think this is where the influence of of someone like Emmanuel Levinas, the great uh, Jewish-Lithuanian philosopher, and William Desmond, the great Irish philosopher, that are both want to think metaphysics because they think to think metaphysics is to think you're other. That being, certainly for Desmond, is not radically other, uh, since I, too, am, but that it's the allowing the other to appear. And in a lot of ostensibly post-metaphysical thought, what ends up happening is you have some version of thought thinking itself, a wide variety of those versions. And so I think figures like Desmond and Levinas pushing again that we should be trying to think of what is other to thinking. And being is other to thinking. And for Desmond, that otherness is kind of intimate. There's a kind of uh, communicative love there. And so I I think that's one of the big reasons metaphysics won't go away (laughs) and is starting to come back. The other reason I think it's coming back is because the anti-metaphysical crowd has had some really important lessons for us that if we just... (laughs) Say well, hum, you know, human is a is, the substance of human is we're a rational, subsistent being. You know, blah, blah, you know, it's like where it's like you would seem like there's no difference between Terence Sweeney in 2020 and you know my ancestor in in 1020. That the kind of static anthropology or or even a questions about a static god where just we can't think any kind of change. That mode of metaphysics, which is coming back in analytic Thomism, often well, it can't speak to history, and so. I think metaphysics is coming back because the anti-metaphysical crowd taught us something valuable. But now we want to think about, about con- continuity over time. How am I related to my ancestor in uh, Southwest Ireland a thousand years ago? And is that relation partially grounded in some kind of continuity of, of a human, human nature? So I, that's why I think it's coming back. It's, it's a perennial question, and the anti-metaphysicians taught us something really valuable about it. So Desmond has described modernity as a kind of system of resistances to metaphysics. Does this mean that much of what goes by the name of postmodern philosophy is actually the culmination of modernity? Yeah, I think so. For Desmond, he always terminologically challenging thinker, but you know, modern thought, it, it's kind of obsessive search for rational explanations uh, tended to kind of a univocity that we just want clear and determinate explanations. And that kind of way of thinking ultimately creates its own problems. And postmodern thought really is kind of trying to, you know, shock, deconstruct that. But it's still the case that in postmodern thought, it's the agent doing that work that, you know, uh, you know I, I, Terrence, will deconstruct some kind of univocal framework. And 
for Desmond, the critique there, the reason why they're, they're actually, they're just kind of the flip side, the equivocal flip side of, of the modern project is it's the emphasis on the autonomous agent, even if they claim to be deconstructing that agent, which they often are, but who then is doing the deconstructing? And so for Desmond's, the an attempt for another kind of postmodernity would be one where we are allowing kind of the other really to speak to me and not so much about my agency, a kind of re- re- emphasis on re- receptivity and communication so that the other, whether it's the tree that I gaze on, uh, the person with whom I speak, or you know, the, big, the, big, the big other, God, speaks to me as other. And so I see that as kind of the space of, of, of being. What is authority? Yeah, great. I, so one of my greatest successes as an academic was uh, John Caputo, along with Meryl Westfall, were at Villanova, and uh, they were on a panel, and Caputo was supposed to give his talk on Saturday. And I, I asked, I said, all this stuff, but what, what's authority? And uh, Jack Caputo told me afterwards he, that he had to rewrite his paper because uh, he realized you really can't, what does it mean to talk about religion without an account of authority? <laughs> so, hooray me. But uh, I didn't agree with his response uh, <laughs> to my ultimate question. But I mean, authority is the kind of experience of a community having a, sh- a shared founding, uh, some kind of sufficiently uh, strong task that we have. So it's not so much, I think a mutilation of this would be that, you know, I, I have the power and I tell you what to do. But rather, uh, you know, one might think of a, of, a, of a team, there's going to be a kind of leader, but the leader is part of the team and their task is to serve a purpose that's, that extends beyond the team. And so, you know, for, ha- for Hannah Arendt's the paradigmatic example of this would be, would be is really the Roman Empire with this kind of strong sense of a founding. And the task was not, was to work for that founding in new ways over time. Ultimately, Rome falls, uh, although it's hard to tell when it fell. So in some sense, the theological task inherited from, by Augustine's kind of work of through Roman philosophy is to, is the authority to teach the gospel. That's, and that authority suffuses the whole uh, church. Uh, parents have to teach children. Neighbors have to teach neighbors. And so the authority there is is to go and make learners of all people. Uh, so in a theological sense, it suffuses the community. And in a political sense, it suffuses the community. Arendt, one of the reasons she, she had such a fondness for the American project was she saw a kind of account of authority in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, a task to build and repair that foundation. If uh, the young Augustine were a college student today, what kind of college student would he be? Yeah, I think he'd be uh, he'd be interesting. We we assume he'd be a partier, uh, and uh, but he, I don't think he really was. Uh, I mean, you know, he settles down with a girlfriend uh, about eighteen, and uh, and stays with her for I think twelve years. I don't remember exactly uh, how long, but about that much time. So yeah, he fools around a little bit, but uh, he's mostly really, really driven. Uh, I bet you. He would have come out of high school having taken plenty of summer uh, internships and SAT prep classes. He'd, uh, he would be a kid from kind of nowhere, some kind of backwater corner of the United States of mixed ethnic backgrounds, dealing with the complexities of people often reminding him of his uh, African-sounding uh, dialect and dealing with the kind of snobbery of, of, I guess, what we would call these days coastal elites. But he'd be at, you know, you know, U Chicago or U Penn, Villanova, U Pitt, one of these kind of high, high level schools, and he'd be working very hard. I assume by the end of college, he'd have an internship for a senator in DC and be he- heading off to give uh, the occasional, you know, you know, press release. And sure, yeah, tagging along with his living girlfriend uh, and maybe drinking a little too much, uh, but never, 
too much because you got a job to do and your dad is uh, spending a lot of money on you. Right. So thinking of uh, the young Augustine then as a, as a kind of winner in the meritocratic game or race, what then is the conversion that takes place in that kind of status-seeking rush? I think a key moment that sometimes gets forgotten is the story he's going to give this speech in praise of the emperor. He's going to say, oh, the emperor's a great guy and blah, blah, blah. And on the way there, he sees a homeless guy, uh, drunk uh, and cheerful. The homeless guy, and the homeless guy apparently is, is yelling to everyone, have a great day, have a great day. And Augustine looks at him and says, this guy is happier than I am. And he's speaking lovingly. I mean, have a great day is a kindly thing to say. And I think that's a key moment in the kind of conversion that we forget because he suddenly thinks, I'm going to go and say a bunch of lies uh, to praise an emperor who is part of the long history of conquest, including the conquest of my own, uh, my own part of the world. And uh, everyone's going to afterwards going to praise me and that will help me get a governorship someday, particularly if I ditch my girlfriend and marry a rich girl. And he sees this, this homeless man and he thinks, I, I think he kind of thinks he should, he should be more like that man. Uh, and, uh, and so that I think is going to lay the foundation for what happens in the garden when he takes up and reads and says, and, it, and the message is to put on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not, uh, is not a <laughs> member of the meritocracy. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. It's grace. Uh, Christ is the giver. Christ himself is graced um, by, by the inc- incarnation. And so suddenly he starts thinking a little differently. And it's notable that what he finds solace in is, yes, definitely the kind of message that he can overcome uh, his, his uh, unchaste approach to life. But it's also to, you know, release oneself from envy and, you know, this kind of jealousy and desire for success. And what does he do almost immediately? He, he hasn't even mentioned that he breaks off his, a, a relationship with somebody. He, uh, he quits his job and he goes to live at a house and sit around and uh, talk to people about philosophy and uh, listen to people recite parts of the Aeneid. Uh, he goes to a, you know, liberal arts college and, you know, sure he ends up becoming a great success anyway. I think, uh, ambition never left his heart. Uh, but that ambition suddenly started shifting its valence towards, you know, I'm going to return to the backwater of North Africa, plenty of corn coming out of there, but you know, not, not, not so fancy. I'm going to go to a place called hippo, which is particularly not fancy. And I'm going to spend my life preaching to people who know a little bit about being conquered. For Plato, philosophy is a spiritual exercise, but Plato did not believe in the gods. So in what way can we say that Plato prayed? And was Plato's prayer different from the meditation practices of neo-Stoics? You know, the kinds of things that, that we hear about on life hack podcasts and so on? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, my take on both Socrates, who's harder to know uh, than Plato because he's behind all these dialogues, and, and on, on Plato is that really we should be thinking of them certainly as philosophers, definitely, but also as religious reformers, that they see in the religious practice of Athens and the Greek cities different modes of atheism. Uh, one, a rising mode in which we deny God's existence. So it's pretty rare, but is, is starting to come up. We see some of these kind of sophists uh, and, and other modes where the gods don't care about us, uh, also still probably rare, but growing. And then the last mode is, we'll, well, if you want something, you, you give the gods, uh, you know, a heifer, and then you get what you want. So you bribe them. And Plato wants to purify this. And so he, he, he I, I would contend Plato definitely does believe in the gods, uh, but he wants to insist that the gods are purely virtuous, that they are the wise ones, and that they, they're movement is to attend to the forms uh, or the ideas, uh, better Greek, and ultimately to revolve around the good that is beyond being 
which he sometimes calls God, although it's confusing about. And so what I do when I pray is I'm, I'm keeping company with people who are, or beings, who are superior to me and who can help elevate me. Uh, so prayer is a, is, is, is a process of keeping better company, relating with the gods. And so as a consequence, becoming ultimately the goal is yourself to become immortal without body and contemplating the ideas. So I think where Plato is very different than neo-Stoics in this is that meditative practices, which are, I would contend, enormously valuable, but they, they tend to be self-work, which is great. Uh, but prayer is other talk. When you're praying, you're talking to somebody else. And uh, something in the Christian tradition, somebody else is talking to you. And they, in fact, that person, God, taught you how to talk. So, but even for Plato, I think in this count, when, we, when we're praying, we're keeping company with the gods who are other than us. So meditation is really valuable as self-work, but prayer is other-directed. And that, I think, is, is one of the key lessons that, that Platonic theology has for us uh, and is valuable for thinking through Christian practices and really any religious or med- uh, uh, meditative practice, that sometimes we need to move beyond meditation and talk to somebody else. So if fear of the Lord is an affective disposition, a certain approach to knowing and to loving, then it would seem that fear of the Lord is a habit. And if it's a habit, then how does one acquire a habit of feeling like this? Yeah, yeah. The great problem of how do we acquire habits, uh, which has haunted virtue ethics uh, (laughs) since Aristotle. But in this Um, case, it seems like there's the kinds of habits and habituated practices that we tend to think about are not feelings, right? And so I think, you know, there's in in the affective turn in late 20th century humanities, we begin to think about structures of feeling in a way that that's somewhat new in, uh, in the intellectual tradition. And, and yet, feelings can be habituated. And then we you know, we also don't typically think of fear of the Lord as as one of the as a habituated thing, but but it would seem that it could be. Yeah. So I think uh, to kind of develop this affect, and we'll just we'll bracket that in itself would be a grace. But I think what would matter here is a, attention to religious practice. So in particular, reading scripture, right, where you're going to encounter a God who is pretty wild uh, and does not act according to your expectations. And requires that you act according to his expectations. And I, this, this wild God is ultimately the, the more fundamental reason. Uh, my, I'm, I'm, a, I'm warped. <laughs> uh, I don't actually understand what's reasonable. But that wild God appears to me in, that, in such a way. And so reading things like the Psalms uh, in particular is going gonna, is gonna to be the kind of things that are going to help cultivate this. But also being, you know, uh, trying to develop yourself so that when you see the command, particularly commands you don't like, uh, you know, love your enemies, you know, care for the poor, these, these commands, the response, it could be a thoughtful engagement, but the response is, is do them. And so, you know, seeing these kind of passages and, and saying, this is something that is required of me. So I think that's part, part of how, you know, cultivating affect is, you know, it's a hard, uh, hard nut to crack. Uh, and I actually would have to really think about more what we're doing when we're cultivating an affect, but certainly, you know, scripture, uh, seeing these as commands and seeing them as commands in the face of others that we that we might walk by and ignore the uh, the poor the oppressed African American and realizing that the command there uh, is one that, that I should tremble at because I my neglect of the poor or the neglect, neglected African American 
or others is uh, it, it weighs heavy on the possibility of my relationship with God. So that's part of an answer. So shifting gears, if, if you're game, we'll have a little interlude of the game Would You Rather, uh, where you have to pick between two options, often both undesirable or two wonderful options that you would never in real life want to choose exclusively. Are you ready? I'm ready. Would you rather be stuck in a desert island with the collected works of C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien? Tolkien. Would you rather send your kid to a nominally Catholic college that still has pockets of truth-seeking or to a secular university that has a very strong Catholic or Christian studies program such as the Collegium Institute or the Beatrice Institute? Yeah, I love nominal Catholic colleges. <laughs> so I'll go, I'll go with that one. I like them to change a little bit their nominal, no, nominalness. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, go Wildcats, Nova. Early Augustine or late Augustine? What's the difference? Uh, I, I guess ultimately late Augustine, in particular, the kind of whereas early Augustine's like doesn't late Augustine doesn't lose the intellectual focus, but late Augustine's when he's like, well, how you want to know how to how to get closer to God? Help the poor guy next to you, and that's not in early Augustine. He has to learn that. He has to learn that from Christ. He has to learn that from his mother. He has to learn that from the people of North Africa. So there's a lot of continuity, but uh, if I had to later Augustine, Henri de Lubac or Reginald Garigou Lagrange. Oh, that's that's not hard. <laughs> Henri de Lubac. Uh, I mean, I love the Dominicans. Go Friars, but uh, but de Lubac. Guinness or Irish whiskey? Guinness. I'm a beer man. The Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John? I would. I'm gonna go with Luke. Yeah. Hannah Arendt okay. or Martin Heidegger? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Hannah Arendt. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think you have to be able to admire a thinker's personal life in order to engage with them. And there's a lot to learn from Heidegger, but. If I'm going to have to spend my life with somebody, I'd like to spend my life with somebody who, whom I admire, not with somebody who was, in just so many ways, a terrible man. The Canterbury Tales or the Four Quartets? The Canterbury Tales is ass-kissing and, and, and just, it's just too much fun. Thomas Aquinas's Five Ways or Pascal's Wager? I'll go with Pascal's Wager. Uh, I think Why? It's, I, I partially, well, we'll see. I'm going to teach it this semester for the first time. We'll see how, how that goes. I've been teaching the Five Ways the past couple semesters. I love the five ways, but I, I, the Pascal it really captures the fact that this, particularly this one line, in it, you must wager. And what Pascal says is he means that not just like it's a moral imperative, but in fact, you are wagering. No matter what you're doing, you're in this game. And that kind of existential challenge, existential challenge that like that the stakes are high and I'm actually already playing uh, them, I think is really, well, for me, when in college, I read the five ways and I wrote, recently reread this essay you know, by 19 year old me, and it's, you know, not good, but, you know, critiquing the five ways. But when I read Pascal, you know, my heart was on fire. What would the Augustinian analysis of Twitter be according to use and enjoyment or curiosity? Yeah, so definitely, definitely you should not enjoy it. <laughs> Don't enjoy it. Uh, that would be, you should only enjoy God and other people in their relationship uh, to God. Uh, Twitter can be used is an enormous danger of curiosity on it. I mean, there's partially because it's constantly feeding my eyes and mind with stuff. And, uh, but, to, but to use it, and I, I don't know why, but I haven't really encountered as much negativity as others. I was struck recently by a couple people I saw on Twitter talking about how many people have blocked them. And I haven't blocked anyone. And to my knowledge, I haven't been blocked by anyone. I don't know if I should just try harder and uh, then maybe I'll get blocked. But uh, I have found, you know, kind of remarkable ways that all of a sudden I realize. I'm actually connected to somebody. Uh, I send them an email to write for GenMod and I, I check on Twitter and I realize that we follow each other, that there's this little tendril of connection 
uh, and you see interesting discussions uh, floating on up there. So I think it can be a really valuable uh, place for use for for writers to get ideas out there. But uh, but uh, <laughs> it's it's not quite as bad as the the One Ring in the Lord of the Rings. But but uh, one should be very careful putting that ring on. Curiosity is one of the chief virtues that universities desire to instill in their students. Is this an instance of the transvaluation of values where something that was considered a vice in pre-modern times has now become a virtue or is it just a confusion of terms? Both. I think the we do have this kind of uh, way of talking about uh, curiosity now that Augustine would still roundly condemn and that I, that I, that I would. This kind of uh, I mean, you know, we should always be taking in more information and as many viewpoints as possible and, and without, without asking the serious questions. And I, in some sense, that's the importance of Pascal's wager, one reason I want to teach it this semester, is that all this stuff it can be a distraction from like, what are the core things I had to figure out in my life? I can add endless amounts of information and disregard the question of God, disregard the question of what do we make of Ahmad Arbery's death? That's uh, was flooding me. And, you know, that, in that sense, I think Augustine would still be strongly critical. So in some sense, it's transvaluation that we've shifted, like, of course, endless knowledge, knowledge acquisition is great. So in that sense, I think that is a real transvaluation. Uh, and I don't know a lot of the scholarship, but there has definitely been work on kind of genealogies of curiosity. On the flip side, I think there is some amount of the word meaning something a little different. Augustine is actually pretty knowledgeable about uh, the natural sciences for his time. Uh, is often referencing them and names of stars and is very, very interested in, in plants and animals and weird reproductive uh, habits and weird ways things eat in other parts of the hemisphere. So the desire to, to know is, is, is good. And Augustine is definitely makes room for it. But the key is, so th in that sense, that's what's the kind of pro aspect of curiosity. The key is, though, is it obscuring the demand, demands for justice, demands for love, uh, the demand for God, the demand of God? And in that sense, I think Augusta would still be very st strongly critical of universities and their kind of rah-rah-rah curiosity. So the 21st century university is ordered toward knowledge production, right? That's what you'll find at the top of all the mission statements of at least research universities. But, you know, a charitable way to read this is that knowledge production is for the sake of problem solving. So the assumption underlying these mission statements is that the world is full of problems and we produce and accumulate knowledge, new knowledge, to address these new problems. So now knowledge production is ordered toward problem solving. Could that be considered interested knowledge rather than disinterested? So it would seem that the modern research university is not as invested in curiosity as its mission statements might claim. Do you see this as engaged and committed interest in problem solving? Is this a form of charitable knowing? Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. I think that particularly because you can put some of these, uh, you know, problem solving endeavors towards incredibly good use. I mean, I'm sure... There are lots of places working very hard on a, uh, a vaccine for the coronavirus. I'm sure some of those are universities. Uh, I, along with everyone, or alas, almost everyone, are eager for such a, a, a vaccine to arise. And uh, that can be a, a real act of service. I think, you know, Augustine didn't have that robust of a sense, uh, probably for a lot of historical reasons, in the ability to, like, fix problems. Uh, yeah, you go to the doctor, but you can anticipate the doctor is going to cut your leg off the same way he cut his leg off 500 years ago. And roughly speaking, that was the case. So I don't think he had quite the imaginary for the idea of productive research solving problems to make the world better. Conversely, though, 
I mean, you know, extensive research into into psych- psychology so that we can de- design marketing programs that will constantly convince us to buy more. That's solving a problem. <laughs> How do we get people to buy more? Uh, but to what end? Uh, so yeah, I mean, coronavirus vaccine, I, I can get behind, you know, advancements in, you know, digital humanities. I don't know a lot about them, but that sounds good too. But all in the service of a uh, capitalist system that is often spiritually corrosive and unjust. Uh, that doesn't seem like problem solving. That seems like problem creating. So to go back to you know, Pascal's wager and in, in this sense of committed knowledge seeking, does this affect of commitment apply only to major existential questions or is it also a necessary disposition even for knowing things like chemistry or physics or the history of the Crusades? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think they're, yeah, I, I, it is good <laughs> to, uh, to moderate a little here in the sense that our interest levels don't always have to be existential. I mean, if, I, if, if all people could only inter- investigate things that are existentially important, uh, the human life would, would suddenly slough away enormous areas of creativity and dynamic enterprise. So uh, I don't, not everything has to be Pascal's wager uh, level of intensity, but when we're dealing with these, these questions, I mean, certainly when I've talked to historians or I had a great conversation several years ago while I was couch surfing in Kentucky. Uh, I hope couch surfing survives coronavirus. Um, and uh, I was staying at this place and this woman, she was getting her PhD and she was studying the digestive tract of, uh, of a specific spider, how one kind of spider digests. And it was fascinating. And, you know, I mean, there, you know, maybe Augustinians would get a little nervous about that. But uh, I think ultimately Augustine would say, yeah, it's the glory of God. What a wonderful thing that spiders digest in various ways. And so I think for that person, that kind of, there's a deep need to understand the spider. And that's rich. I don't, the, the danger is, is a deep need to understand the spider blocks out any other kind of core questions to understand God, to understand others. Uh, but I don't think it, I don't think it needs to. Uh, I, I've known, you know, house painters and carpenters who have an intense focus on being a good house painter, being a good carpenter and maybe figuring out how to fix their pickup truck when they get home, but still have a lot of room for God and for taking care of their little kids uh, and volunteering at the local fire department. So I think we can, we are, we, we're not infinite by any means, but we are capacious. Uh, and so we can take a deep interest in the digestive tract of spiders while still taking seriously the question of God, justice, and what love means. So maybe another way to come at this is Gabriel Marcel presents a contrast between problems and mysteries. First of all, when Marcel talks about problems, does, does he mean the kinds of problems that the modern research university sets itself to solving? And, and, and then is there, is there a way where mystery, like the seeking after mystery, can be pursued as part of pursuing a problem? Yeah, so I definitely think Marcel would say a lot of what research universities are doing and what most of us are doing most of the time is, is dealing with problems. And I think it's important when Marcel has a distinction between mystery and problem, the point is not that problems are bad or that we shouldn't pay attention to them. If, you know, if the, of a problem is determining you know, how to, how to, how to you know, fix the gears on my bike, you know, that's great. Get, get to work. <laughs> uh, Marcel's concern is that if we let problems kind of dominate our whole way of thinking, uh, that's a problem. Uh, so uh, uh, he wants to insist that, that, that we need both. His emphasis is on mystery because he thinks we're squelching that. I think in some sense, it's good to be attentive to the way that 
problems, particularly ones where we're trying to know particular things about particular things, these things can kind of add up to a vision that helps us with questions of mystery. When Augustine is you know, gazing at, at trees and mountains uh, at the Mediterranean Sea just off the coast of Algeria, or we call, now call Algeria, I think he's trying to pay attention to things. And I think that that little kind of attention, also true of the woman studying <laughs> spider guts, um, can help us to start having a vision of of certain mysteries. They, uh, they can almost be propedeutics uh, or, or you know, preambles. The danger is if in thinking that we're going to solve, solve mysteries as though they were problems. Uh, you know, I, 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 now that I have a six-month-old and I've been married for a year and a half, I can opine on marriage and childbirth. But it's, you know, there are problems that arise, but I wouldn't say that I need to figure out uh, marriage like a problem. Uh, I have to live it. Uh, in that sense, it's a mystery. In that sense, it's temporal because I have to live it now, and I, if the good Lord's willing, and I'm still kicking uh, in 40 years, I'll have to live it then. So I think there's a lot more continuity between mystery and problem, and problems actually can help us think about mystery. Another great example of this would be uh, everything that Annie Dillard writes, uh, but particularly Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, where she's you know trying to figure out why a bug eats a frog in a certain way. And you're reading this, and you're like, this is gross, and why is she writing about this? And the next thing you know, you realize it's a theodicy. Why, why evil? So I think there's, there can be a much more fruitful continuity between the two than, uh, than sometimes we, we like to think. But we and need- Diller's a great example, and it seems to me that the pathway there between problem and knowledge, I'm, problem and, and, and mystery, is wonder. Yeah. Right? right? It's, it, and, it's, and it's not so much curiosity. It's interesting that curiosity is all over mission statements. Um, and I have seen the language of wonder popping up here and there, but not as much. And I think this is partly because wonder can seem to be the, the arrival to critical thinking. And anything that, must, that could possibly rival critical thinking has to, has to be set aside. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. I think particularly at wonder, wonder is the experience of being struck by, by other things. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it kind of comes over us. Uh, it requires things of us. In my dissertation, I try to argue this kind of dialogical nature to wonder that, that we, we, what we're encountering when we wonder about things is, you know, what's this other thing like? And, you know, uh, and I think, you know, whereas critical thinking is an activity done by me on other stuff. Uh, I critique, I am the critic. And what, but what wonder is not like that. I mean, uh, it's, I mean, I would, you know, I, I wouldn't say I want to apply critical reasoning to my wife. Uh, rather, I should experience with wonder, you know, her as a person. And I think, you know, wonder, yeah, it, it's, and it's a metaphysical virtue and, uh, and yeah, has been, you know, largely banished from most, yeah, schools. I actually have never seen it in a mission statement for a kind of standard, you know, university type uh, setting. So because wonder is, is as much an, affective disposition as it is anything else. Could I take some time? Could I perhaps meditate to get myself into the right disposition of wonder prior to going on Twitter or Facebook or reading the newspaper and then turn that experience of curiosity in the bad sense into an experience of wonder? Is it Uh, possible to do that? Yeah, I think, you know, (laughs) spending time, uh, just spending time just watching things, looking out the window. Uh, Jess and I have a wonderful roof spots uh, where we can sit and watch trees. I'm particularly interested in squirrels and can actually can help. I think 
you know, for instance, uh, St. Anselm and his prayers and meditations, the meditations build you up to get to the point where you can pray. And I think if you practice this way, particularly if you are filled with the wonder of plurality, that there are so many people with so many voices, which is a which is wonderful. Uh, we all know there's a lot of darkness to that, but uh, that's the wonder of plurality that, that I think, you know, in many ways, what Arendt wants to do in her work, I think, is restore wonder to this experience of political plurality. And when you turn on Twitter, uh, as it were, what you'll find can be actually times wonderful. There's this group of um, uh, young scholars, grad students, or just out of PhDs, uh, they call themselves the Hegel Dads for whatever reason. It's four or five guys at different different schools right now. And uh, they're super psyched to argue that Hegel is like the most important Christian philosopher. They want us to stop reading William Desmond and Cyril Regan. So I don't, I don't agree with these guys at all. They don't like Augustine. But they're so ginned up on talking about like Hegel and why Hegel is like origin for our times. And that's, that's pretty amazing. Like, that's awesome. And, you know, or whoever it is who runs the Twitter account, uh, a raccoon for every hour that posts a picture of a raccoon on Twitter every hour. I love that person. <laughs> like, uh, it's amazing that someone would be like, you know what, I'm going to put pictures of raccoons up. Yeah. So I think you, it, it can be, if, you know, a place full of wonder. Now, we all know the ways it can be a place of curiosity and a place of uh, bitterness and acrimony. But I love those pictures of raccoons. And to what extent do the objects of knowledge determine whether we can approach them with wonder or curiosity or fear of the Lord? Yeah, yeah. I think was, to some extent, you know, some, some objects are going to, I would say some things would, are going to depend on the person. I think it's okay that some people are filled with wonder at the, at the wilderness and other people don't have much desire to go into wilderness. I, I, I go into the wilderness. I love being in the wilderness, but I also love being in a city. And I, I don't mind that people experience kind of Enjoy living in different ways. So it's good to recognize particularity is going to be key in this experience. I don't care about the digestive tracts of spiders, uh, even though I find them mildly interesting. Uh, I just, I, studying the digestive tract of spiders actually, to me sounds pretty horrible. So being aware of particularity, I think, is key for different objects. But I also think we should be careful uh, delving. I mean, I think Tolkien said this about C.S. Lewis with the screw tape letters, being careful about delving too deeply into dark arts that we can have that's that, you know, if I'm interested in, um, you know, I, I can't think of an example, necromancy or something. Fascism. Uh, fascism. I should be very careful about that. Why am I interested in <laughs> Why am I, uh, I'm not doing this by the way, but why am I suddenly watching endless clips of fascists on YouTube? Well, probably the content there is going to be hard to square with a kind of deep sense of wonder or certainly the fear of the Lord. Now, this isn't to say that there isn't legitimate research into these things. I remember I was in a college course on the Third Reich, and I was watching uh, Triumph of the Will, and uh, uh, someone was like, what are you watching? I was like, it's Nazi propaganda, but it's for a class. Like, so being aware, that, yes, I think certain objects, certainly you know, anything like, like pornography, you know, maybe a lot of pop culture, seem hard to square with an experience of wonder or certainly the fear of the Lord. But, uh, so I, I'd want a lot of breadth and plurality there, but I think there are there are areas where my interest in them, you know, if I have a deep interest in developing more powerful chemical weapons, I, I, I can't imagine that the deep interest is grounded in the fear of the Lord. That seems possible to think. Now I want to read you part of a poem and ask you a question about it. This is William Carlos Williams's The Catholic Bells. Though I'm no Catholic, I listen hard when the bells in the yellow brick tower of their new church ring down the leaves, ring in the frost upon them, 
and the death of the flowers, ring out the grackle toward the south, the sky darkened by them, ring in the new baby of Mr. and Mrs. Krantz, which cannot for the fat of its cheeks open well its eyes, ring out the parrot under its hood, jealous of the child, ring in Sunday morning and old age, which adds as it takes away, let them ring, only ring. So what is the relationship between church bells and birds? What difference do birds make to church buildings? Yeah, I mean, definitely having climbed into a couple of church towers in my life, uh, you will find uh, copious amounts of bird uh, crap <laughs> in them. So this, the relationship can often be intimate. But I think, I mean, the sounds of, uh, of birds and the sounds of church bells can you know, summon us to very, something very similar. I mean, you know, some birds don't, don't sing too beautifully, but most are really lovely. I am blessed to be in West Philadelphia. We have lots of trees and consequently lots of birds. Uh, and so I can wake up you know, to the sound of the birds chirping and, and nowadays my daughter chirping. And I think those sounds, they ring out and they call us to attention. We can ignore them at our peril in some ways. But so I think, you know, both are, you know, singing the glory of God. And, you know, I think, uh, I think that's part, partially what, you know, William Carlos Williams, not himself real, uh, religious, is hearing in those bells, the ways they summon forth uh, all these different things, the baby, uh, I forgot this, this. I forgot in this poem this word, the grackle, which I realized I don't, I don't even know what that word means. <laughs> Here I've read this po- poem so many times, and what is that word? Uh, the things one does not notice. So I think that kind of summons forth from us the, the bells and birds are both callings. Say you have a church with bells. Let's suppose you're the sexton of a church with bells, as you actually are. What traditional protocols are there for using them? Yeah, so we typically try to ring, uh, ring them before Masses as a summons, uh, let people know Mass is starting soon. Uh, you can ring them for the Angelus, which is a Catholic prayer reminding us of the Incarnation. Uh, and you ring them at 6, 6 p.m. Uh, noon, and one can ring them at 6 a.m., uh, although you will probably get complaints uh, and, uh, if you do that. The other time you can ring them is for, uh, as a death toll. Uh, commonly, you would ring those, that, that the, the number of years of the person uh, who has passed away, or uh, or seventy years is, I think, the biblical age. If you don't know the person's death age, so you have uh, a number of occasions. I the best ringing I've ever done uh, was when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, uh, and I went up in the bell tower and just just banged away for quite a long time. And I went outside, and there were all these people outside cheering. And uh, so you ring them for joy. There will come a day uh, when Pope Francis and Pope Benedict uh, pass away, and uh, and I will go over to the, the church and, and and ring the death toll for for the Pope. So they can be rung in tragedy and joy uh, as a summons to church, as a reminder of prayer. They're uh, they're a wonderful thing. I I didn't get to go to any Easter liturgies this year because of the coronavirus. My wife and I went down at about 9 p.m. for the Easter vigil, and we rang the Gloria. Hadn't been able to sing it uh, for all of East, uh, for all, uh, all of Lent, and haven't sung it once for all of Easter. But I got to ring it, and people got to hear it, and that's the sound of of resurrection. What are the the logistics and the pros and cons of keeping a church building perpetually open? Yes, this is uh, unfortunately becoming the perpetual battle of of my life in West Philadelphia, keeping church doors open. The Logistics are in some in, norm, in normal times, of course. We're yeah. Not, we're well, not yeah. No. About yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, we're always. I'm always running into people who think the my parish, St. Francis Sale, should lock its doors. And usually, the argument for locking the doors, at least in an urban setting, is well, there. I would say there's two arguments. There's one that is I don't agree with, but is has some strength, and there's one I find 
uh, morally uh, unacceptable. So w- one would be the question of danger. If the church uh, is not secured, there's no, no one on site, always in the building, something could go wrong, whether a crime uh, or an injury. That's a legitimate concern. I think, you know, you do what you can to keep the place safe, turning lights on and, and things like that. But that's one of the biggest arguments against uh, keeping church doors open, at least in an urban setting. The other argument tends to be that uh, homeless people, every once in a while we'll have homeless people come in and they sleep in our church. And some people, whom, whom I shall not name, <laughs> uh, think that's terrible. And uh, that argument I find completely unacceptable as a Christian, uh, the idea that we would be appalled by the homeless sleeping in our church. I, I, I don't, I have a hard time seeing the virtue of that argument. So those are two reasons, though, that I've heard why they should be kept locked. The logistics also are you've got to make sure the place is well enough lit. Uh, and that, you know, costs a little bit of money in the age of LED. That's a little easier. And then finding a way to, you know, make sure that people know it's open so that the, 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 uh, the baptized and unbaptized can, can come in and, and see the space. Uh, most churches, not all, but most are beautiful. There's an incredible experience of space and capaciousness. So there are challenges, and uh, certainly at my parish, we have there are people who have pushed to have our, our doors locked separate from the coronavirus, and, um, and everyone knows what I'll say in response to such arguments. But, but you know, opening them up is symbolic and literally important. The church is too tempted by closure or maintenance. You know, well, we have to keep the church closed to maintain it. So that is no way for something to grow. Terrence Sweeney, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.